Ladies and gentlemen, please welcome to Scraps, a podcast that explores the stories about the sparks of brilliance behind innovation in science and technology. This is part two of the interview with Professor Warren Grill, and we pick up at the point where Warren tells us that he simplifies and tries to explain the most complex things using a few fundamental principles. I think that just reminds me of of a classic saying in from where I come from that knowledge if it's not shared is useless tinsel and the next thing is if it is not communicated in a manner that is understood um if it's not communicated in a simple manner that enables understanding then there is no point in that knowledge I think I think that is the best summation of of what you have shared there Warren and i know that your teaching is legendary uh, i've had multiple interactions from you and i think i'm going to kind of if i'm if i may warren i think there are some aspects of 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 neurophysiology and aspects of how um nerve stimulation works that you explain that i've not seen anybody explain the way you do it in in very simple terms so why don't you maybe pick a, a classic kind of theory of some sort and just explain it the way such that a non-scientist could really understand. Yeah, maybe, maybe we could come back to uh, one of the early successes of neural stimulation that was invented by at Case Western by Tom Mortimer, who was working with a neurosurgeon there named Norm Sheely. And this is epidural spinal cord stimulation for the treatment of chronic pain. And the the story there is really quite illuminating, which uh, Melzack and Wall in, I think in 1964 or 65, published in Science their gait theory of pain and implants of devices to exploit that theory to treat chronic pain were already in human by 1970. So I, I wish we could operate on those kinds of timelines today, but we don't. It's something to aspire to. And what I think is is somewhat, I think this is a good example because I think that everyone can resonate with the experience that perhaps inspired this theory in the subsequent treatment. Yeah. So. Epidural spinal cord stimulation includes an electrode put inside the spinal bone, so inside the spinal canal, but outside of the sac called the dura that holds the spinal cord. So it's called epidural, near the dura. And it delivers electrical stimulation that stimulates nerve fibers that carry sensory information up to the brain. So for example, if you rub your forearm, those, that sensation is carried by nerve fibers that go up your arm into your spinal cord and then on up to your, to your thalamus, an area in the brain that relays sensory information. And when you stimulate with that epidural electrode, you stimulate those same nerve fibers. 
And in fact, with conventional stimulation, people actually can have a, have a sensation of tingling called a paresthesia that results from stimulating those sensory fibers. So we've all had the experience of, you know, maybe banging our thumb with a hammer inadvertently. When I was doing those projects as a young kid with my dad trying to put the fireplace in, I'm sure I did it a number of times. And the response is to then rub. Rub your thumb. Makes it feel better. Or if you get a bee sting on your forearm, you'll then rub it, and it makes it feel better. And what's happening is you're activating large sensory fibers that you then have that sensation. Those large sensory fibers inhibit the transmission of pain, which is carried in small sensory fibers at the level of the spinal cord. So that rubbing's actually, it, it, it makes it feel better, but the reason it makes it feel better is that it prevents the transmission of that pain signal. Well, if you have chronic pain, you don't, you're not gonna be rubbing your, your uh, low back all the time to activate those sensory fibers to inhibit the transmission of pain. So instead, stimulate through that epidural electrode, activate those large rub-carrying sensory fibers, which then inhibits the transmission of pain and people feel better. That's fantastic. That's uh, and this is the way you explain it in very simple terms uh, to explain why a mother would actually rub a child's leg or, or a toe after uh, the child has actually banged its foot. I think that basically stems from basic principles in in, in neurophysiology. I think I think that's the, that's the take home message, um, and and that's what you do so well, um, Warren. Thank you for doing that for us. And I. Think I think it's illustrative of this 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 opportunity that I talked about earlier, which is you know from understanding comes innovation. So what Sheely and Mortimer recognized was those large sensory fibers that you activate by rubbing could be electrically stimulated to inhibit train, pain transmission. Right. That that was the light bulb, if you will, that went off in their heads and enabled them to take advantage of that underlying physiology. And I think there are lots and lots of opportunities out there for for us to do that. It's just a matter of having that recognition. How can I take advantage of that system to treat a disease or to uh, restore function? So how, how do you based on that idea from understanding comes innovation how do you really drive toward applying your learnings and not just you but in your lab and your with among your students as well what's that process look like yeah so so we want to i'll tell you where we want to get which is to this the notion of clinical feasibility so doing small numbers of experiments in humans who have the disease or the condition that we're trying to treat to see if what we've discovered might actually work. Not try to prove that it works, but to say it might actually work. And so the process to get there, it, 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 it will have two, typically two different seeds. 
one of which is an observation that we might make during a preclinical experiment in an animal where we're delivering electrical stimulation and we, we make some observation from that and that inspires an approach to treat disease or dysfunction. And the other is a, is a more deliberate one where we use computational models along with engineering design tools to prospectively design a, an intervention to try to influence a system in a certain way. So sometimes it's the first one is more of a serendipitous observation and the second one is more of a directed design approach. But ultimately, we would take the outcome of those when they're successful and then try to move them to that state of human feasibility. And those experiments would often be done with needle electrodes or catheter electrodes or surface electrodes or during an, in a surgical procedure where that nerve or location happens to be exposed temporarily uh, so that we can take it we can do a short-term measurement in a human and determine whether or not what we saw in that computer model or in that animal model might actually also be true in the human and i think it's important for the the listeners especially the ones who aren't um audience in the neuromodulation area to understand that to move from where you were in a preclinical setting observation to the first clinical data that you're suggesting using kind of existing technologies or wires, et cetera, that space in terms of development is very short. And something that that is amazing about neurostimulation that we were able to get that clinical de-risking data much faster than a molecular entity example. So, and I know that you you have you are a big proponent of of for a large number of disease indications why pharmaceutical agents don't necessarily work, Warren. So, do you want to kind of say a bit more about the fact that how different and how widely applicable neurostimulation might actually be um, for this? It'll be useful for people to hear it from you. Yeah, I think the. The big potential advantage of neural stimulation has to do with, with selectivity. And I'll describe what that means in, in, in the context of pharmaceutical. So most pharmaceuticals will bind to a receptor. And then in, in a, speaking of things that are acting in the nervous system exclusively, and then have an influence on that nerve cell after binding to that receptor. Those receptors are present ubiquitously in most cases throughout the nervous system. So you might be trying to treat overactive bladder, in which case you'd be binding to acetylcholine receptors uh, to try to prevent their action. But there are acetylcholine receptors that do lots of other things, and there's no way to only influence the bladder so people get side effects of blurred vision and confusion and dry mouth because of the binding of that drug to acetylcholine receptors in other locations. So it's a lack of selectivity because you typically take that pill, it goes in the bloodstream, it influences those receptors throughout your body. With neurostimulation, we have the opportunity to influence things locally. 
that is only stimulate the neurons that in this case would inhibit bladder contraction to treat overactive bladder by, by physical location of the electrode adjacent to, near to the, elect, the neurons that you're trying to stimulate. And so you, you then don't activate those things that might produce blurred vision or confusion or dry mouth. You only inhibit the bladder and treat overactive bladder. So it's, it's, I think it's a, it's a notion of spatial selectivity. In the case of the pharmaceutical, you're influencing things throughout the system. In the case of stimulation, you're influencing them only locally. Um, if, if, if I can ask you then one more, just so that people can really appreciate the diversity of what you do, uh, not just within uh, the area, but also about the various type of technologies and, and capabilities that you do um, uh, in terms of people as well as uh, um, the, the various kind of work streams in your lab. I'm just going to pick a couple of them, Warren, and I think it would be fantastic for for people to understand. You mentioned overactive bladder. We will come to that at the very end, um, but it would be useful for people to understand that deep brain stimulation has been around for a long time. It is immensely um, efficacious for some various type of movement disorders and and in epilepsy, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. Now. What does your lab doing in, in deep brain stimulation that is transformative that you would you believe that you would add value uh, to what's already been out there? Yeah, so the, the, the area that we're really most interested in is the temporal pattern of stimulation. So this is a really good example, I think, of this theme of from understanding comes innovation. Although deep brain stimulation has incredible clinical efficacy, profound effects on people's lives, we still don't understand entirely the underlying mechanisms of action. And we had a hypothesis in the early 2000s that one of the important effects of deep brain stimulation was to pace or regularize the firing of neurons. So like a metronome, we believed that those neurons would have to fire in lockstep with the stimulation in order for them, in order for the therapy to be effective. And this was inspired by some computational modeling work. So coming back to Jojo's earlier question, this was something that emerged from a computational model. But we wanted to test that hypothesis. And we hit upon the idea of what if we deliver random patterns of stimulation at the same average frequency, but with, with a random pattern. And the hypothesis was that this would not be as effective at treating the symptoms. If the, if the metronome or pacing hypothesis is correct, when you're no longer pacing that neuron with a regular pattern, it shouldn't be effective. So we took advantage of the fact that deep brain stimulators uh, have a finite battery life, and patients have to come back in typically maybe four years after the device is implanted and have a new device implanted in the upper chest where this is typically placed over the pectoral muscle uh, because the batteries are dead. That's a relatively 
quick and benign procedure. It takes about 30 minutes. It can be done under local anesthesia. And we took advantage of that to make a temporary direct connection to the implanted brain lead of patients who had either essential tremor or Parkinson's disease and deliver these random patterns of stimulation and, and assess the effect on symptom. And the outcome was consistent with our hypothesis. The more random we made the pattern of stimulation, the less effective it became at treating either tremor or, or slowness of movement in Parkinson's disease, such that the most random patterns weren't effective at all. It looked like there was no deep brain stimulation going on. So this was interesting from the, from the underlying mechanism of action point of view. But as I said at the beginning, I'm an engineer. And what it inspired was the idea, could we design patterns to make the therapy work better? And by better, we had two criteria in mind. One is, given that the batteries only last four years, could we improve the efficiency of stimulation to make the battery last longer? And the other was, could we do a better job at relieving symptoms? So there are certainly patients who, while they get benefit from deep brain stimulation, still have residual symptom, and we'd like to be able to get them to the point of having virtually no symptom. So we developed first a design process to come up with patterns of stimulation that in the computer would either be more efficient or more effective than conventional deep brain stimulation. We then again took advantage of this temporary direct connection to the brain lead during battery change procedures to measure the effects of these patterns in human and showed that in the operating room, indeed, they performed like they had in the computer. We could treat the symptoms of Parkinson's disease either more efficiently or more effectively by choosing the appropriate pattern. And then subsequently, we transferred those patterns to a startup company called Deep Brain Innovations, and they're now pursuing subsequent clinical studies outside of the operating room to see if what we learned during these short-term human feasibility studies actually hold true in the real world environment. And I think that's where the electrical stimulation is very similar with my rudimentary knowledge or absolute lack of knowledge of music is very similar to, to music, right? That every single nerve, every single neural structure has a specific rhythm. And what as neural stimulation or engineers and, and, and scientists that we're trying to do here is to match the stimulatory pattern to what could be as close as possible to what nature is and that's what you were trying to do with the with the randomized uh, stimulation sets that you were trying out in deep brain stimulation is that a fair assessment then warren i still don't think arun that these patterns of stimulation are quote natural the, so if you think about conventional deep brain stimulation, it delivers pulses 130 times every second, every minute of every day, every day of every year. So 130 pulses per second forever and always. The effects of that stimulation on symptom are, as we discussed earlier, profound. That clearly is not a normal 
firing pattern for neurons in that part of the brain. But it is less abnormal, apparently, than the pattern of stimulate the pattern of activity that occurs in Parkinson's disease. So I think there's an opportunity still to move to what you're describing, which people in the field would call biomimetic. Let's make it look like it would under conditions of health, and that may yield uh, the optimal therapeutic benefit. We're not there yet. You're one of the few people, and not being a scientist or an engineer myself, I'm very likely wrong, but you're one of the few people that I know that embraces so many different targets. So you work in deep brain stimulation and spinal cord stimulation and peripheral nerve stimulation. Most other researchers that I know sort of attach onto one target and and stay there for their entire career. I mean, there's obviously plenty to do in any one of those targets. How How do you even, I mean, it's almost got to be three different languages, four different languages, and you, you're speaking them all coherently and fluently. How, how does that all work for you? Uh, again, this, this wasn't by design, Jojo. This was just by, uh, you know, kind of relates to the, what, what drove me into this career to begin with is the opportunity to, to do whatever you want as long as you can find someone to pay for it. Uh, and, you know, seeing interesting problems or opportunities in systems and that, and we'll go over it and work on that. And so, so that we haven't, we haven't, we haven't limited ourselves. We, if we think there's an opportunity, we're going to go after it. And there, there are two things that I think enable this. Uh, one is the exceptional people that we have as part of our group and empowering those people to really take leadership roles early uh, and, and drive things forward um, and help to educate me. Uh, early on in my career, uh, my, my first doctoral student, uh, who I was very fortunate to have a, a stellar uh, guy who you know named Cameron McIntyre as my first PhD student, he was about to defend his PhD. And I was talking to a colleague, a guy named C.J. Heckman, who's a professor of physiology at Northwestern. And I was saying to C.J., you know, I'm really concerned, C.J., because I'm not sure I understand exactly everything that he's doing. And C.J. kind of passed me on the back and he says, congratulations. I said, what? He said, that's exactly what's supposed to happen. He's been working on that 24 hours a day, every day for the last five years. If he doesn't know more about it than you do, then there's some, something is wrong. And uh, th that was reassuring to hear because at, at the time it, it, it bothered me greatly and, and now I've come to embrace it. So, so one, one key then is, is having these terrific team members and empowering them to lead in these different areas. And then the second, I think the second is uh, finding themes that can be translated from one area to another. So, for example, we talked about the power of temporal pattern in improving the efficiency or efficacy of deep brain stimulation. And we're now pursuing that same approach, but in spinal cord stimulation for chronic pain. And many of the tools that we developed, particularly with respect to how do you design those patterns for deep brain stimulation, we can kind of port over 
and use for designing patterns to make spinal cord stimulation more effective at treating chronic pain. Even though it's a very different system, we're taking that same theme from one place and applying it in another. We thank our sponsors, Cortec. Please visit cortec-neuro.com for enabling tools for your neurophysiology research. Okay, so Warren, you already talked about the multiple targets that you focus on in your lab, and you were kind enough to break that down for me, including the deep brain stimulation work. And we also know that there are other strings that people would benefit from knowing about. So let's talk about the first one, um, and that would be OAB. Can you explain why a peripheral nerve target might be beneficial and why more beneficial than a sacral nerve stimulation? Original interest in restoration of bladder function, actually, the the seed of that was planted when I was a graduate student at Case Western and got to know a spinal cord injury physician named Graham Creasy, who came to Case Western for a three-month visit and ended up spending, I believe, more than a decade in Cleveland before he moved on to Stanford University. And one thing that became really apparent in talking to Graham and speaking with individuals who have spinal cord injury is how important restoration of bladder function is to them. You see someone in a wheelchair and you immediately think, oh, they can't get up and walk. But if you sit and speak with them for a while, you understand the things they're really concerned about are pain, bladder function, bowel function, sexual activity. Uh, the wheelchair really works pretty well. So that, so that was my, I would say, the seed that was planted uh, that then germinated in our interest in restoring bladder function. The particular approach that we took was really premised on a behavioral observation. And that mode of inquiry, if you will, going from behavior to neural system, was inspired by a course that I took at the Marine Biological Laboratory shortly after I completed my PhD called Neural Systems and Behavior. And it was really a summer camp for scientists where we spent all day, every day in the lab more or less doing any kinds of experiments that we, they, that we wanted. And they really emphasized the idea of paying close attention to behavior. So if you've ever been to the playground, uh, and you have to be careful that somebody doesn't think you're some kind of a weirdo, uh, and, you, and you watch young children on the playground, if you see young boys, they'll grab the end of their penis. Or young girls will cross their legs and kind of do a little dance. And I think like most people, I thought they were doing plumbing, right? They had to go to the bathroom. They don't want to stop playing to go to the restroom. Uh, so they would physically occlude the, the urethra or the outlet. It turns out, in fact, that they're not doing plumbing. They're doing neurophysiology. And they're activating a reflex that goes from the glands of the penis or from the clitoris and inhibits the bladder. And this is put there by Mother Nature to inhibit bladder uh, contraction during sexual activity. So if you, the, the inspiration was, hey, if you can do this mechanically, could we also do it electrically by stimulating a peripheral nerve, activating those same sensory fibers, and drive that same inhibitory bladder reflex, and then use that to suppress 
in individuals with spinal cord injury, what are called hyperreflexive bladder contractions, abnormal bladder contractions, or in individuals with overactive bladder to suppress abnormal bladder contractions. And this also had the appeal of being a peripheral target. So rather than the sacral nerve, which is up in the pelvis, this, these nerves are located out in the periphery and are easier to access for implantation of an electrode. It's where your tail is. Correct, exactly. Um, but the pudendal nerve, uh, in contrast, is, is in a region that is closer to the bladder, correct? Exactly. And tell us a bit more about the surgical axis as well, because currently if somebody has to put in a sacral root, um, it has been on the market for quite a few number of years, um, and physicians usually do it very well. But there is also a surgical axis viewpoint that you have with respect to the peripheral nerve stimulation, which is pedendal nerve stimulation for treating OAB uh, versus uh, sacral nerve. So do you want to say a bit more about that? Yeah, this particular target people refer to as the dorsal genital nerve. As I said, it innervates the glands in the male and the clitoris in the female. And one part of it that's appealing is it's on the front side of the body. And the individuals who implant uh, devices to treat overactive bladder are urologists or urogynecologists. And their, 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 their domain is they're working, used to working on the front side of the body. Whereas accessing that sacral area that we spoke about earlier requires them to access the backside of the body. So this is just an area where they're much more comfortable operating. The nerves run very close to the surface of the skin. And in fact, you can activate them temporarily using an adhesive surface electrode without implanting anything in the body. And what we did in our initial clinical study of this was use a percutaneous wire that could be positioned just using a needle. Uh, sitting adjacent to these peripheral nerve branches and stimulating them quite effectively. That's great, Warren. And I think that, again, to Jojo's point, it kind of shows the breadth from where you were explaining earlier about Parkinson's over to another disease condition and another nerve target uh, in in the uh, peripheral nerve stimulation to treat overactive bladder slash spinal cord induced uh, bladder dysfunction. More recently, I think you um, have a very different approach uh, to looking at peripheral nerve stimulation, uh, which you have strong been a very strong proponent of saying that peripheral nerve stimulation is not done the right way. And therefore, you proposed a specific way to the NIH Park initiative to as, as a mechanism such that one could perform uh, peripheral nerve stimulation in a more rational manner. So do you want to tell us a bit more about that? Uh, yeah, we have a, a program that's funded by the NIH SPARC initiative, and really we're trying to address two fundamental challenges of peripheral nerve stimulation. One is that when you apply a stimulus outside of a complex nerve trunk, where there could be thousands and thousands of individual nerve fibers running near that electrode, it's unclear which of those nerve fibers are being activated or perhaps blocked under different conditions. So you, as you change the knob on your stimulator, you don't know how that's influencing the underlying nerve fibers. And then secondly, if through some other experiment you had learned 
which of those nerve fibers were important to stimulate or block. It's unclear which parameters you should be using to do that, to, as in the parlance, to stimulate selectively just those nerve fibers without stimulating others. And the example there would you, you would use is of a nerve like the vagus, for example, right, where it carries many different nerve fibers. So, Exactly. If you stimulate the vagus nerve at the level of the neck, the so-called cervical vagus nerve, it's innervating every organ in the thorax and abdomen, as well as innervating muscles that are uh, skeletal muscles around the airway of the neck. And so it's unclear, for example, if you only want to activate the branch of that nerve that goes to the heart uh, to slow the heart rate, how you should select an electrogeometry or stimulation parameters that allow you to do that. Interestingly, this project grew out of a student, uh, this whole effort grew out of a student project in a course that I teach. So at Duke, we have a course called Fundamentals of Neural Stimulation. And in that class, the students are required to do a semester-long project that addresses a real question in neural stimulation that we don't know the answer to. And uh, Nikki Pillow, who was a doctoral student in the at the time, teamed up with an MD-PhD student who also worked in my lab named Christina Berend. And they looked at whether or not the signals that a company called Enteromedics was using to treat obesity in fact, did block neural activity in the vagus nerve. And to do that in the course of a, of a semester project, they built a computational model of this company's electrode. And their conclusion from that study was, no, it's highly unlikely that enteromedics is blocking the, the fibers in the vagus nerve as they thought they were, which was a, it was a terrific project. And the model was, and the model that they built of the peripheral nerve is fundamentally different from the model that they built that you had actually worked on for the Parkinson side of things, correct? Correct. This is a, the the model for the Parkinson's is a small circuit, brain circuit, uh, up in an area of the brain called the basal ganglia. The model that Nikki and Christina developed was a, a branch of the vagus nerve called the abdominal vagus that innervates the stomach. Same principles applied in both locations, but very different models. So after this experience, Nikki came to me and said, and at the time she, for her doctoral work, she was actually working on deep brain stimulation. But she said, oh, I'm really interested in continuing to pursue this work. That is modeling of autonomic nerve stimulation and block. We did not have a project in the lab at the time. But as we spoke about earlier, one of the, the, the secrets of success, I think, is to empower people and let them pursue their passions. And so Nikki uh, pursued this project. And as it developed further, uh, we started to recognize that the impact could be much broader than, than just the questions that we were interested in asking and could impact lots of other investigators who were interested in either stimulating or blocking elements of the vagus nerve or other autonomic nerves. And so from that grew our Spark-sponsored project. That's fantastic, Warren. And I think there is many more nerve targets that people are currently looking at, exploring, that would greatly benefit from this type of modeling work to clearly ascertain, are we selectively stimulating the fibers that we want to stimulate? And going back to your earlier argument about 
selectivity in neurostimulation. I think there is one way to selectively stimulate, which is to go exactly where you want to go and selectively stimulate the region. That is probably an experience that most neurosurgeons and, and folks who are familiar with deep brain stimulation and spinal cord stimulation for pain are a lot more um, aware of. But in the case of peripheral nerves, and depending on whether you're on the transatlantic cable, which is the vagus, to many other different targets, one need to one needs to clearly ascertain: Are we stimulating? Are we stimulating correctly? Or are we first of all are we stimulating in the first place? Yeah. Second is: Are we stimulating correctly? Or is there things that we can do to improve uh, the therapy, which I think would greatly benefit patients? So I think all of these are are fantastically. Um, relevant work for for the field and um we're so grateful that you and your and your team members um and hats off to the graduate students and postdocs who are actually doing this work um uh, so thank you so much for doing that and i think what you said there really resonated warren and i think there was i'm going to bring up one statement that you had mentioned to me a few years ago um but it really speaks to what you just stated which is you're really letting talented people come in with a passion for what they want to work in um identify help them identify what that area is and empower them to do what they have to do and your job is to find the resources to enable that so you mentioned to me a few years ago that you are running a business enterprise in academia and i don't think there would be that many academics who would actually acknowledge that and you were one of the very few people who would actually kind of come out and say that i am running a business and what you exactly said is what most of the business leaders etc would always say in in talent conversations which is to give them the the area and and let and help them kind of grow in their roles um yeah, it's a, it's a it's an interesting small business running an academic research lab. It, the the one important distinction with a couple of important distinctions with a conventional business is we we can't turn a profit, and we definitely can't have a loss, or we're in real trouble. And our uh, talent pool is by design temporary. So we you know a, a, a doctoral student is here for five or six years. And just when they know the most and are the most productive, they leave. And early on, this was really scary because a lot of wisdom and experience and expertise walks out the door when when that happens. Uh, but fortunately, there's another passionate uh, student who's coming in the door and is going to take something in a direction that with, without that person, we never would have done. So there were some... Big news this week, Cameron McIntyre, who you already talked about as being your first postdoc and him knowing more about a subject than than you did and that making you uncomfortable. Um, and the news this week that he is now coming to Duke University and to to join your team once again as a compatriot. How did that all um, happen and, and what's going on with Cameron? Yeah, it's, uh, we are all very excited to have Cameron joining the faculty at Duke. He'll have a joint appointment in biomedical engineering and neurosurgery. And he's really going to be leading an effort to develop surgical simulation. 
So as some of your listeners know, Cameron really pioneered the idea of building patient-specific models of deep brain stimulation and using those models to determine appropriate electrogeometries and stimulation parameters for, partic- for individual patients. And not only has this approach uh, resulted in improved therapy, it also has really had a dramatic impact on our, our understanding of what is being stimulated when you put an electrode into this complex uh, region of the brain. He's interested in extending that broad approach of simulating surgery to impact healthcare more broadly, so outside of deep brain stimulation. And there are some nascent activities at Duke in this area of surgical simulation. And so he's going to come down and, and really coalesce those efforts and lead a large initiative in this area of surgical simulation. One component, of course, will, will continue to be in deep brain stimulation, but it will be broader than that. I have to say that one of the things that I love most about my current job is seeing the success of former students or postdocs 20 or 25 years later and reconnecting with them. And in this case, I'm, uh, it won't just be reconnection at a single dinner. It'll be reconnection as a colleague. Uh, and I really am looking forward to the opportunity to, again, work closely with Cameron. And I also want to know what happened to you and the BMW. Did you ever get a BMW? What do you drive today? Yeah, so that experience, again, that I had as a, as a parking valet at a country club in New Jersey, I think, uh, amplified my interest in, in nice cars. And You're not a Mercedes owner, are you? Excuse me? You're not a Mercedes owner, are you? No. Now, right now, I'm driving an Audi S4, which is a overpowered go-kart and uh, extremely fun to drive. But as, a, as an assistant professor, you really don't have the, uh, the means, typically, to go out and buy a BMW. Uh, but I was really fortunate to have an opportunity to do some consulting work for a company called Nuvasive. And this company works on implanted devices for spine surgery. And they had a very interesting concept, which was to use electrified instruments to assist surgeons in navigating around the back. And the risk there is that as you're you're working your way through the muscles approaching the spine, that you could damage uh, nerves or nerve roots as they're exiting the spinal canal. And so they had this idea of deliver electrical stimulation, and that will tell you, based upon the responses that you evoke, how close you are to those nerves and whether it's okay to proceed or whether you need to alter your surgical path. They had this terrific idea, but did not have a great deal of experience with the fundamental principles of neural stimulation. So it was a great match between what what they needed and what I knew something about. And uh, I did had a very productive consulting relationship with them including many trips flying from Cleveland to San Diego shortly after 9-11, which was a very uh, interesting time to be in airports, as, as you might imagine. At the time I was working for Nuvasive, they were a venture-backed uh, company, startup company, a little bit further than startup, but a venture-backed young company. And part of my compensation for them to save cash was uh, options. 
to purchase shares of the company at some time in the future. And fortunately for me and my penchant for expensive cars, they did an uh, initial public offering several years later. So I was able to capitalize on those stock options. The first thing I did was took a, uh, some of the proceeds and put it into college savings accounts for each one of our two children. Which is much needed. Yeah. But uh, I then went out and uh, bought a BMW 530i and eventually Fantastic. realized that dream that I had as an 18-year-old to uh, own a BMW. Yeah, dreams do come true, right? You just got to work hard for it. So that's fantastic. Be patient and, and uh, have some good fortune along the way. Ladies and gentlemen, you're listening to Professor Warren Grill talk about his um, journey from his very early days um, to his current position as Professor of Biomedical Engineering at Duke University. Um, Warren, thank you so much for taking the time and sharing things about your life and both personal and professional that I don't think many of the listeners would ever have had any idea about the stories behind your success and also your dreams, wishes and failures. So thank you so much for sharing that with us. Um, we really appreciate that and we hope that this will serve as an inspiration for many students and, and trainees and even established scientists in the area. Thanks very much, Arun. Thanks very much, Jojo. And uh, best wishes with your Scraps project. Our sound editor is Sayantan Chandran. The soundtrack was Digger by Acidat. You can find their collections on Apple iTunes Store, Google Play Store, Spotify, and many other platforms. Our main sponsor is Cortec. You can find their information at cortec-neuro.com. This is Arun and Jojo signing off. Okay.